0: Hey, this is the part of the service where we uh, take an offering. And if you're new to Genesis, you may think it's weird that we celebrate when we take an offering. And there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, One is because the Bible tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. And so we want to be cheerful about our giving. Now, the second reason is that every dollar you give goes to help us do the ministry here at Genesis Church. We couldn't do uh, what we do at Genesis without your gifts, whether you give online or through the envelopes and the seatbacks, or if you write a check every week, however you do it, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for your gifts. And uh, the other thing you need to know about that is a tenth of everything that our church gives goes right back outside the doors to help those who are less fortunate. And we have ministry partners that we partner with all the time that get uh, contributions from us every month. But every once in a while, something comes up that we feel like we need to respond to as a church. And so this week, uh, you know, we all watched in horror as uh, Southeast Texas was overcome with Hurricane Harvey. And we saw people lose their homes, lose all their possessions, and in some cases, lose their lives. And in those kind of natural disasters, our go-to organization is Convoy of Hope. Now, we have a long-standing relationship with Convoy of Hope. They always seem to be among the first people on the ground when something like that happens, and uh, they're great at both meeting physical needs but also sharing the, the name of Jesus uh, to the people that they encounter. And so this week, Genesis gave a $5,000 contribution to Convoy of Hope to help Hurricane Harvey victims, and that's because of your—yeah, thank you for that. That's because of your generosity. And if you want to help out, uh, prayers are always needed, obviously— But if you wanna help out in a tangible way as well, uh, we encourage you to go to convoyofhope.org and find out a little bit more about what they're doing uh, on the ground in Texas. So with that, I'm gonna ask our host team to come forward and take up the offering. We celebrate that at Genesis. Let's celebrate together. And while they do that, I wanna show you just a little bit, a, a brief snippet of what Convoy of Hope is doing in Texas. We are currently responding to Hurricane Harvey and we're in Ingleside right now, one of the communities that was hardest hit by the storm. We just came from Aransas Pass a little while ago where they're also doing distribution. And behind me you can actually see a distribution being set up for people in the community, but there's some people already lined up looking to get relief supplies as there's no power, there's no stores open, and there's nothing accessible. So our team is looking forward to providing supplies to these two communities and to communities all along the coastline and inland that were affected by Hurricane Harvey in the coming days. Well,
1: Genesis, I want to thank you for your generosity because, uh, well, if it wasn't for your generosity, we wouldn't be able to give a gift like that. And so thanks for demonstrating your love and your passion for helping people find their way back to God. Um, let's take a moment. Can we just pray uh, for the relief work that's taking place there, uh, those that have been affected by it, and certainly the churches that are ministering there even right now. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we won't pretend um, to understand why things happen as they do in this world, uh, storms like these and millions that are impacted and so many people that have lost so much, Lord, it's always it's just so difficult to understand. Um, what we do know is that You are a God of grace and mercy and compassion, uh, that You hear the cries of those who are hurting, and that You use people, uh, You use Your people, You use Your church here on this world Um, to bring relief and to help others find their way back to God. And we do pray for your relief work uh, through so many, even this morning, Lord, through Convoy of Hope and all of the churches that are serving there and all that are coming in the name of goodwill even, Lord. And uh, we pray that through this that you will provide for those that are hurting, those that have lost, those that have lost loved ones, those that aren't really sure what the rest of their life looks like from this point forward, and uh, Father, we believe that You can respond and that You can heal wounds and that You can bring hope, and we do pray. We pray for those followers of Christ that are serving You and serving You faithfully this morning from churches to organizations and even a gift like ours, Lord. We pray that You would take it and multiply it and use it in amazing ways. Uh, Lord, teach us every day what it means to live for you, to reach out to those who are hurting, just even in our own lives. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. But we thank you, God. Thank you that we get to be a part of your work. And we want to stay faithful and humble to whatever you may call us to. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, it is good to be with you today, and um, I know Steve uh, mentioned my name is Paul Mumoff. I've never had the chance to meet you before. I serve as the lead pastor for Genesis, but if you are new with us, not only do we have a campus here in Carmel, but we have one in Noblesville as well. And uh, so I preach most Sundays in Noblesville, but I always look forward to the opportunity uh, to come and to be here with you. And uh, he alluded to the fact that I had the privilege of taking a sabbatical this summer, uh, a 14-week sabbatical that was just a wonderful gift for uh, our family. And um, <clears throat> thanks to a very generous gift from the Lilly Foundation here in Indiana, we were able as a family uh, to do some pretty amazing things this summer. And um, I'd love to just share with you just for a moment uh, specifically about a trip to Israel uh, that I had the privilege of taking. Uh, my sabbatical started back at the beginning of May. And uh, I had one week at home and then immediately was off to Israel. And I had never been to Israel before. Has anybody in this Service, been to Israel before. We had two in the last service. Uh, I had never been there before, but I got to tell you, it exceeded my expectations. And uh, man, if you've ever thought about it, or even if you haven't, and maybe today will help, get it on your bucket list uh, to go and to spend some time in Israel because it really changes everything. Again, it was a 14 day trip. I traveled with 40 people that I had never met. And uh, we've got a picture here of our tour group. A buddy of mine had introduced me to the teacher, and so I jumped in on a group of 40. We had people mostly from the U.S., some from England, even from Australia. And here's our team. I'm in the far back row, left side, second from the left. We are on the southern steps just outside of the temple in the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, For any of the festivals that people would have returned to Jerusalem for, they would have gone into the temple likely from these steps. And uh, our, our trip was unique to a degree in some of the preparation that we had to do in advance. Our teacher, let us know that we had to be physically ready, that we would hike 5 to 10 miles a day. Uh, He talked about the type of clothing we needed, the type of hiking boots we needed, uh, backpack, water, that we were going to be on the move every day. The elements were going to change. It was going to be hot. And so we had to be ready to go. And so we arrived in Tel Aviv, spent the night there, our first morning on the bus. All 40 of us piled on the bus. We're still getting to know one another. And here's the way that our trip experience worked. Our guide explained to to us, his name's Brad. He said, "Hey, I'm gonna let you know minutes before we arrive how much water you need, all right?" But he never let us know what the itinerary was for any given day outside of how much water we needed to prepare for, and it was intentional. He just simply wanted us to follow him and to trust him, and really to experience things much like the disciples would of a rabbi, even in Jesus' day. And so here's how it worked: We'd be on the bus minutes before we got to a location. He'd let us know how much water we needed, we'd get to work, start packing. The bus would stop. He'd come over the mic and say, come, let's go, please. We'd get off the bus and just start following him. And we'd usually be out in the middle of nowhere, and we'd just follow him down this dirt road. And then along the way, we'd stop, and we he'd tell us to grab a rock, and he'd teach. Um, and every once in a while, you'd start to put some pieces together, not like it was a riddle or anything, but beginning to just process where we might be, what it is we were going to see, And like on this one particular day, we were out in the middle of the country, and we approached uh, this chain-link fence, and we got up to this chain-link fence, and we're just kind of standing there. Well, minutes later, an ATV comes flying down this dirt road in front of us, dust flying behind it. He pulls up alongside this chain-link fence, gets out, unlocks the gate, lets us in, and we begin walking into this area. And again, Brad's teaching, and he's teaching from the Older Testament about Saul and Jonathan, and he starts describing this place called called Bet Shayan and, uh, you know, we start seeing some of the artifacts. Well, wouldn't you know it? And like so many experiences, we eventually crossed this ridge, and then we stepped into this location here called Scatopolis. And Scatopolis is an ancient Roman city. Uh, It's a city that's a part of the Decapolis, and we'll talk about what that means in just a moment. But we walked through this location for about an hour, and Brad taught us about the history and taught us about archaeology. But here's what was comical about our experience. As we stepped into Skatopolis, and you can't see it from this picture, but on the other side of this location is a huge parking lot full of buses and tour groups that entered into the site from the main entrance. But what made our trip unique is that we often hiked to them because our guide had a belief that if you walk the ground as the people walk the ground, and even if you have to sweat it and you've got to walk the hills, well, then you'll remember it for the rest of your life. And so every day was like that. Uh, every day was a new experience, a new adventure. A few of my most memorable, uh, I've got 300 pictures. I'm going to just show you like three more. But uh, this next one here, this is in the desert in southern Israel, the Negev Desert. We spent two days uh, down in the Negev region. And on this one particular day, we hiked down into this, a large. Uh, it's the largest erosion canyon uh, in the world. It's something like seven miles wide, 30 miles long. And while they aren't for sure that the Israelites would have passed through this region when they were wandering in the wilderness, they were likely in the neighborhood at least. And so, we spent four hours one day hiking down into the canyon and through a portion of it. The temperature soared above 100 degrees. Our teacher wanted to help us understand what it was like to live in the wilderness for 40 years. We did four hours, and you start to get some perspective when you're out under the sun and when you're sweating it and when you rely on that water. And again, He would teach us along the way. This next picture here is from the top of Mount Carmel looking out over the Jezreel Valley. If you were here last week, Jerry, uh, our associate pastor here, preached on the story of Elijah. Uh, this is where that battle with Elijah and the prophets of Baal would have taken place. We hiked to the top of Mount Carmel. It took us a couple of hours to get up there. Again, our teacher did some teaching from the top, but in great fashion. Once we We were finished, we continued up the hill through the trees and stepped right into a huge parking lot full of buses. People are looking at us like, where in the world did you come from? You know, you can ride a bus to the top, but again, it was all a part of the adventure. And then this last one, this is from Mount Arbel uh, near the Sea of Galilee. And Mount Arbel is where many believe Jesus gave the Great Commission where He told His disciples to go into all the world, to make disciples, to share the gospel, and to give you some perspective. Again, I'm on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. You can see across it, and to my, if you're looking over my shoulder, and so to the right, to my right, uh, to the northern tip of Galilee is the city of Capernaum. All right, we'll talk about Capernaum in just a moment, but again, you get some perspective of where I'm located, and that'll make sense uh, in just a second. And so, man, it was fascinating, a uh, great experience, loved seeing Israel that way, I'll, I'll never… Read my Bible the same again, uh, having experienced something like this. So I hope you get an opportunity like this at some point, too. But I want to tell you about something cool that's coming up at Genesis. Write this down, if you would. On Friday night, September the 29th, uh, we're bringing my teacher here, my guide from that trip, a guy by the name of Brad Gray, to Genesis for a Bible study. Um, he's gonna, it's going to go from 6 to 9. We're going to host it at our Noblesville campus. There's no cost. Uh, This is a gift. It's a part of the financial grant that I received, and so therefore this grant helps pay for this experience for our church. Brad's one of the most interesting teachers I have ever sat under. And uh, again, six to nine, you can sign up on our website. You can sign up through the app. Uh, This next slide will just give you a glimpse of what he's going to do for us. Over the course of a couple of hours, he's going to teach through the Bible from beginning to end and help us better understand how it all points to Jesus the whole thing. It all points to Jesus. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that means for us as individuals, what that means for us as a church today. You'll get a copy of this handout at the very end of it. You won't regret it. I I hope that you can make this a part of your schedule again Friday night, September the 29th. It's going to be a really good time. Uh, I spent two weeks in Israel, came home, and had 12 weeks in front of me. Uh, to just do a number of different things. Our family, we took a trip to Alaska together and were able to do a cruise. We've got this picture here in front of Hubbard Glacier. Uh, if you ever get the chance to go to Alaska, I mean, what a great opportunity to enjoy uh, God's creation. Uh, just a few weeks ago, at the very end of our sabbatical, Jenny and I got away to New York City uh, for a few days. We had never been there before, and so we traveled with two of our closest friends and uh, just simply saw the city. Our goal and going to New York City uh, was just to experience New York as any resident would. Like, we didn't want to stand out like typical tourists and all. And I've got a picture here. Again, we didn't want to look like typical tourists, but uh, there's a picture of us in Times Square uh, with our I Love New York shirts on. We wore those the first day and just got a kick out of the fact that we were willing to do that. So but we had a great time. And again, just saw all the sights in New York. Uh, we Uh, Ended it Uh, At the very end of our trip, we went to the Kelly and Ryan show. Don't judge me, guys. All right, I love my wife enough that I was willing to do this uh, with her, but I will say this. It was about 10 minutes into the show when the thought hit me that it's probably time to go back to work. Like, you know, if, I mean, this is what it's come to, I probably ought to go back to work. But uh, in between it all, we visited a number of churches here in the community, Uh, loved uh, experiencing some of the other worship services and uh, churches around town around the middle of the country as well. I I did a lot of bike riding. I loved all the downtime with my wife and kids. I did some reading and studying, but not too much. Um, I enjoyed letting go and catching my breath. Um, I rested, and for those of you that know me, my hair even grew back, you know, uh, this summer, and so rest will do some things. We need to give Steve some time off. Uh, Maybe his hair will grow back too, but uh, uh, the Lord taught me a lot, so many things that I'm still processing, a few things before we move on. Number one is I love this church, and I am so thankful uh, to serve with you here at Genesis. I feel called to Genesis. I look forward to all the years ahead. The second thing is I'm really excited about our staff, and uh, they threw a party for me the first day back, and we took this fun picture together. We have a great team, and they love this church, and they're praying for you, and they're serving you faithfully. Uh, You got a great Uh, campus pastor and Steve, and I'm so thankful for uh, the way in which he led our church, uh, even this summer in my absence, Um, but for all of you as well and the work that you contributed to that. Finally, I'm excited about where the Lord is leading us. I really am. I feel very confident in what we're up to, what we're dreaming about, what we're praying about. I love that we're making disciples. I get excited when I think about every man, every woman, uh, every student uh, living as kingdom workers Uh, in our community. We're going to talk about that a little bit today, but as kingdom workers in this community and around this world. And so I just want to say thank you. Uh, Thanks for supporting me. Thanks for supporting my family uh, with your prayers and while we were away. Thanks for caring for each other and for our staff Uh, while I was gone to It really is a wonderful pleasure to serve with you and we got a lot of fun. There's going to be a lot of fun ahead of us as we keep trusting the Lord together. So, hey, if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to take it and turn to Mark chapter 5. I'm sorry that I forgot to get the page number for that. I think it's in the 700s, but Mark chapter 5, the second book of the New Testament. Uh, We're in the last week of a series here at Genesis that we've been in all summer long, a series called uh, Humans of the Bible. Uh, Next week, we're going to be kicking off a brand new series where we're going to spend the whole fall in the life of Jesus and starting with His baptism. Uh, And so that'll be appropriate with next Sunday being a baptism Sunday for us too. But uh, today, as we finish up this series, I want to introduce you to a man who everyone had given up on. Uh, You could say this man was a hopeless soul. You could uh, say that everybody had written him off, that he was way too sick, that he was way too dangerous. I mean, he had fallen so far in his life that no one wanted anything to do with him. He had no hope at all. That is until the day he encountered Christ, uh, that he encountered Jesus. And what we're going to see today is this. And if you're taking notes uh, and you want to write this down, we're going to see that no one is beyond the love and the grace of Jesus. Uh, No one. Uh, That means every man. Every woman, every student, every child is a unique creation of God, never out of reach of His love and grace. And what I want you to pay close attention to today is how this one encounter with Jesus is the catalyst that changes everything, all right? It it begins with Jesus. It only happens because of Jesus, because no one else could help Him. No one else could heal His wounds. No one could make the pain go away. That is, except for Jesus Christ. And you know what? The same is true for us, too. The same is true for you and me uh, and our encounters with Christ, too, and and not only you, but it's true of the friend of yours right now, maybe somebody that you're investing in, somebody that you're hurting for or praying for. It's the same for uh, your husband, maybe, or your wife, or your son or daughter who's drifting right now. Uh, Maybe it's a classmate. No one is beyond the love and the grace of Jesus and what Jesus is going to do for this man who couldn't help, help himself. I want you to know He can do for you, all right? He can, he can heal your wounds. He can heal your pain. He can, he can give you a new start. He's, he, he's the God that can bring peace if there's chaos in your home right now. He's the God that can restore joy. Uh, if that's been missing and maybe been missing for a long time, He's a helper for us in the loneliness. He can give you influence and, and a greater reason and a purpose to live for Him. Uh, here on this world, in this world. And so, uh, He's our human number 11, I think, uh, all said and done. Uh, in this series, we're going to call Him. The title on your notes today is The Demoniac. You'll see why. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Let's pick it up there. It says, they. Stop there for a second. Who are we talking about, right? Jesus is always a good guess, right? And in this case, it's true, all right? And so, we're encountering Jesus as well as His disciples, All right, and so Jesus, like any good rabbi, is with His disciples. All right, and look what it says. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now... We've got a map here that I want to refer to uh, with you for just a moment. This is in my office, and if you see the light-shaded blue uh, body of water in the center, that's the Sea of Galilee, all right? You saw that over my back, that picture from Mount Arbel. I would have been standing in the region of Magdala, all right, just to the uh, west side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long from north to south and about 7 to 8 miles wide in its widest region. See Capernaum at the very tip uh, of the Sea of Galilee. This was a ministry headquarters for Jesus. Uh, Mark records that they are going to venture into the region of the Gerasenes, all right? You see Gerasa directly across the sea from Magdala. The Gerasenes would have been the region of the people from Gerasa, all right? And so we don't know for sure uh, where they're located, okay? But we do know, and Matthew records this as well as Mark and Luke, that Jesus and His disciples left Capernaum in the north, and they're going to travel over a portion of the Sea of Galilee to this area around Gerasa on the eastern side of the lake. Now, I had a chance to visit this area. We actually spent one morning there for some devotion and some teaching. And while the precise location of this event is uncertain, there is a strip of land there, all right, along the shore. We would have sat up closer to the road, but there's a strip of land there that if you were to come in by boat, you would actually look up into this land, all right. There were these high cliffs, All right, and so again, you get some perspective. You get at least a little bit of a picture. And this narrow bank, again, if you were sitting in the water looking up, you would see these cliffs. And in certain locations along the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, they have located these caves, which archaeologists believe and have studied also were tombs, all right, in the ancient times. That'll make sense for you in just a second. Now, this trip to the other side of Lake for Jesus and the disciples is extremely significant. All right, and here's why. Very exciting for Jesus, but for the disciples, terror. All right, they're terrified, and here's why. Going to the other side of the lake means entering into a region we also known as the Decapolis, and if you see at the Far bottom right-hand corner, this area of brown, is what was referred to as the Decapolis. Deca meaning ten, polis meaning cities. These are the ten cities. These were Greco-Roman cities, but to any good Jew, no man's land. All right, this is off-limits. All forbidden for Jews. These are pagan areas. And so, for any Jew that wished to remain holy or pure, you stayed away from these cities. These cities had a reputation for an ungodliness. Uh, these cities had a reputation for party and sex and, and you know, uh, again, all these paganistic influences. In fact, when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, He talks about the prodigal son who runs off to a far-off place, any Jew listening to that story would have thought Decapolis. They would have thought cities like Scatopolis, and so devout Jews wanting nothing to do with the Decapolis, and so they avoided it at all costs. But guess where Jesus is taking His disciples? See, this teacher, this man is like no one else. And so what's Jesus doing here? Well, He's tearing down walls. He's rewriting the rules. He's expanding His ministry to include more of the Gentiles, but more than that. Jesus is ready to demonstrate to His disciples that no one is beyond the love and the grace of our God. No one. Absolutely no one. And you know what? For us, like the disciples, if we're really going to open up our lives to the Lord, if we're going to surrender all that we have and are to Him, if we're going to sing like the song says, you know, I've decided, you know, I want to follow Jesus, well, then God's going to lead us into some places that we would probably choose not to go on our own. He's going to lead us into some uncomfortable environments. He's going to put us into situations that are going to require greater trust and faith in Him. But it's from these unfamiliar and sometimes even very frightening places that, you know what? We get to see Him demonstrate His love and His power and His grace, maybe in ways that, like we've never seen before. And who would want to miss something like that? Verse 2, it says when Jesus got out of the boat a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him this man lived in the tombs all right you saw a picture of that just a moment ago and no one could bind him anymore not even with a chain For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And so night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. There's an ancient Jewish document that provides four uh, indicators, if you would, in the ancient world for insanity, like four things to check off your list in diagnosing an individual. One of those was spending the night in a tomb. We got that. Uh, One was tearing one's clothes. We see that here. Another was walking around naked at night. We assume that. And finally, destroying things received from others. Here's the point in all of that. We've got someone that others believed was a madman, that he was insane, he's crazy. All right. And in this case, demon possessed. Now, let's just say this about that it's difficult to understand why demon possession occurred then and why it still occurs today. It's really a challenging topic that we don't have time to tackle this morning, but what we do know is that Satan is at work in this man's life. There's great influence that's taking place here, and Satan's game is destruction it's always destruction and division. His goal is to destroy lives and relationships and to separate people from God. And we're not sure why or how he's got a hold of this man's life, but Mark makes it a point to really just describe for us his hideous appearance. I mean, think bleeding lacerations, scabs, infections, and scar tissue. He's living in a delirium, really, of pain. He's, no one could subdue him. He's isolated from everyone else. The point is he's a mess, a lost cause, probably more of an animal than a human. He's got nobody to turn to. And everybody sees a madman, but Jesus sees something different. He sees a lost child. He sees a soul worth saving, a human being. And here's this great thing about this God of ours. And I pray and hope that you'll hear this today. No matter where you're coming from today, no matter what your life is, has been looking like or what you've been enduring. And Jesus makes this so clear for us. But while everyone else had given up on this man, Jesus always sees a life worth saving. It's just who He is. See, here's what we know. As humans, we were made in the image of God. That's what's true of you. You were made in the image of God. Genesis reminds us, Genesis 1.27, that we are made in the image of God. That means every human Uh, every human life, we bring glory to God then when we are living out of this image, when we find our identity in Him. I mean, it's why murder is so horrible. Uh, It's why abortion is so sad. It's why things like racism and hate are so unlike this God of ours, because every life matters to God. And because every life matters to God, we're reminded that we are created. You were created in His image. And for this reason, we can know that we're loved by God. The Prophet Isaiah records it like this in the Old Te- Older Testament, Isaiah 54 verse 10. He says this of God, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. He goes on to say this is a God who has compassion for you. And how did He demonstrate that love for us? Well, His greatest gift, His greatest act for us was to give His Son, Jesus Christ, who gave His life on the cross for you and for me. Paul reminds us of this in Romans 5.8. He says, but God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can you see how every life, every human life, your life, is beyond measure to God? And how do we know? God gave His own Son. He provided His own Son who gave His life for you And he gave his life for me. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 7.23. He says, hey, you were bought at a price, the price of his son, Jesus with his life for you and for your pain and your hurt and your sin and mine. See, Satan hates this. He hates the value of that God places on life, and so He seeks to destroy, all right, the image of God in any man or woman or student or child. And so from God's vantage point then, that means that any attack on a man or a woman or a young person is an attack on His glory. And so enter Jesus Mark 5, verse 6. Look what happens next. It says, When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now, the man is not running to meet Jesus as much as he's running to confront Jesus. And here's why. Don't miss an important detail to this particular account. Who's talking to Jesus? All right? It's not the man. And if you read this, if you look at it closely, it's the demons in him that are responding to Jesus. And so this man falls on his knees, and not as an act of worship, but really in grudging submission to Jesus, to God, All right, And so he falls on his knees at the sight of his presence and power. And the first words out of his mouth are really so significant. Mark records him as son of the most high God. Interestingly enough, this is the highest title used for Jesus in all of Scripture. And so here's what I don't want you to miss. Even the demons recognize the power and presence and authority of God in this world. All right? I want you to know that for your life today, all right? Even whatever evil, whatever trouble is surrounding you right now, even they, even it recognizes the power and the presence and authority of God in this world, His power and His presence. Even they must submit to it, even Satan himself. Verse 9 says, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now, a legion, all right, a legion was the largest unit of the Roman military, all right, made up of anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers, all right, as well as horsemen and other technical personnel. To the Jewish person, when they heard legion, when they saw legion, for them, it represented overpowering numbers. It it represented relentless strength and brutal force if necessary. So the point here is that an army of demons uh, possess this man. They are great. They control him. They want to destroy him and ruin his life. And they're really off to a great start. Look at verse 11. It says, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, hold on to that for a second, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs, the herd about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Now 2,000 swine is a lot of bacon, all right? And I don't know about you, but I love bacon, all right? So let's not judge Jesus here, all right, for the loss of all the potential bacon, but for the Jews, pigs were ceremonially unclean. All right? uh, they were forbidden animals, but that's not the case in the Decapolis. All right. If if you're not Jew or if you're not a devout Jew, well, you don't have anything to worry about when it comes to these pigs. And so, in the Decapolis, they regularly sacrificed pigs uh, in their in their temples, and in other pagan circles too. Everyone knew that Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the great Greek kings of the second century B.C., that he captured Jerusalem, and as a way of really putting it to the Jews, he sacrificed a pig on their very altar to God as a way of desecrating the temple. The Romans also ate a lot of pigs. And so, were the drowning of the pigs an example of God's judgment? Possibly, all right? But notice that Jesus didn't send the demons into the pigs. He simply gave them permission to enter into the pigs. And then what happened? Well, 2,000 pigs come rushing down the bank and into the lake and drowned. Is it fair to say that the pigs committed mass suicide? Could you say that of them, right? It's rough, I know, but I, I, I could not help myself. I just had, I had to tell it. But, you know, they, they enter into the water. They, they drown. Some believe the drowning of the pigs was symbolic of God's power over Rome. Uh, here's something that's interesting. There's an artifact here. This can be found in the Jerusalem Museum. Those letters in the center represent the ancient Roman legion, all right? And I don't know if you can tell or not, but there's an animal inscripted below it, and that's the wild boar, all right? And so I just think that's sort of interesting and potentially all of the symbolism that's wrapped up into this moment, all right? Whatever the case... Here's what we know. Here's what we can be confident in. The drowning of the pigs was a powerful testimony that this man had been delivered. He gets a fresh start. He's got a new day and a new opportunity before him. This is an amazing uh, symbol of God's power over evil and hurt in our world. Verse 14 says, Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Now, why are they so upset? Why do they ask Jesus to leave? Well, their economy just took a hit, all right, in losing 2,000 pigs. So there's some fear. Um, The other is that maybe He's just a little too powerful for them. Some think maybe a little frightening, you know, maybe so much so that Well, they didn't need Jesus interrupting or disrupting what they had going on. We can be like that too sometimes, can't we? That we want to allow Jesus into certain portions of our life. We'll give Him room in certain areas of our life, but not complete control. We're afraid of, well, what might He do with me or what might He ask of me? And then there's our human for today the man formerly known as the demoniac did you catch mark's description there verse 15 it says when they came to jesus they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind what what a great example of the power and the love and the grace of god And notice, and Mark records that he's sitting there. Some translations say sitting at his feet, which is intentional because a disciple would sit at the feet of the rabbi and learn from them and say, I want to replicate my life after you. I want to follow you. I mean, this is the posture of a disciple. And so we know he's in his right mind, and he's dressed, and he's alert, and he's free. And again, what an example. Jesus Christ undid the work of Satan in him, and he transformed this life that no one could help, and he set him free. Here's the thing for us. Sometimes we fall so far. We mess up so badly. Uh, We think there's no way out, and maybe sometimes we descend so deeply into sin, and we wreak havoc on our lives and for others, and we lose everything. And again, sometimes we may conclude that there's just no way out, that I'm beyond help. Can I, can I remind you of something that is true for us today? Here's what's true. Nothing can stand in the way of the healing and transforming work of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Yeah, do you believe that for your life today? And I pray that we've all experienced that in some way, and maybe for some of you today is the day. Maybe this is why the Lord has you here this morning, maybe for some of you the first time. He can undo the work of Satan in your life. He can help in the hurt. Uh, He he can be the one to kind of walk you through a season of restoration and renewal and, and help and forgiveness, and He can set you free and he can heal you from your wounds. I mean, Jesus loves to set people free you know, from sin and from wounds and from fears and from the past. That's his goal, all right? That's the goal that he's after with each of us. That's what he wants for your life too and what he did for this man. He can do for you as well. Let's finish it off, verse 18. It says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him, and Jesus didn't let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, all right, think of this region, how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. And so Jesus gives him his life back and then what? all right, he sends him home. I mean, this man wants to go, but Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. No, I want you to go home, and I want you to show your family. I want you to tell your family and friends what it is that God has done for you. Now, think about it from this man's perspective, all right? He's had some tough days. He's got a very difficult reputation, and so he must have thought, who in the world am I? All right, and, and the scar so visible on his body, he's going to forever be known or associated with the man who at least was a part of 2,000 pigs, All right, part of the economy, losing their life in the water. But somehow he overcame all of this, and I think Jesus knew he would. And Jesus sent this man home to tell his story. He released him out as a kingdom worker. All right? That's what he does. He says, I want, to, I want to transform your life, and then I want to send you out as a worker, you're a part of this. A a kingdom worker is someone who is sent out on mission to tell the story of here's what God has done for me and I will never again be the same. And that's precisely what he did. He went home and he started telling people about Jesus. Well, one thing led to another and pretty soon his story reached the entire region and many believed even though we don't know this for certain, if you piece together some of the accounts that I'm going to refer to in just a second, that this man became a well-known evangelist for sharing the gospel and the good news of Jesus in the Decapolis. Again, we can't know for sure, but there are two events in the life of Jesus that seem to indicate what happened. If you look, and you can read these on your own, if you turn over to Mark chapter seven, Jesus is going to go back to the Decapolis and a small group of people are going to come with him, to him with a man who is deaf. And Jesus is going to heal him. And you can't help but ask, was that one man, maybe a part of the group that returned to see Jesus? And then again in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is in the Decapolis and guess what? 4,000 people are going to come and hear him teach and Jesus will feed them. And how in the world did they know and hear about Jesus? We don't know for sure, but here's the point. I want you to see the potential of God at work, even through one person, even in one life, sharing their story in faith and in hope that God can do the same for someone else. Could it be one man, one healed life, saved by God? Here's the thing, no one is beyond the love and the grace of God. And just as God worked through this man in ways that others turned to Christ, I promise you, He wants to do the same in your life, too. And you may think, you know what? My life is boring. You know what? Our Lord is not boring, all right? Life change is not boring, and that's why we throw a party every time somebody is baptized here at our church. He wants to use you, and He wants to use you this afternoon and tomorrow, and Tuesday, and He wants to use our hurt, and He wants to use our pain, and He wants to use your faith and this church together so that people find their way back to God, so that people come to know Christ in this world. Let's pray together. And as we pray, you know, I want to just acknowledge that for some of you, maybe part of why God has you here today is just to hear this story but to hear it in such a way that you know and realize that you have hope. There's a way. There is a way through this and his name is Jesus Christ. And God demonstrated his own love for you in sending Christ into this world and what we're up to today is doing our very best humbly to let you know that you can be certain that your life matters to God and that what God did for this man, he can do that for you. And maybe for some of you, you're hearing this for the very first time. For others of you, maybe you've been hearing this for years, but maybe you're in a season. Maybe you're coming out of a season. Maybe you're coming out of some events. Maybe you've just simply lost hope or lost your way. You're not beyond the love and grace of God. No life is beyond His love and His grace, and it's available today for you to take it and receive it. And you can reach out to Him in your own words and even in your own heart and mind, even doing that right now, and I promise you the Lord will respond to you. He knows, and He's ready to come to you as you cry out to Him. And and if you're uncertain what to do with that, if you need some help and just figuring out, hey, here's where I am and here's where I think I need to be, man, we'd love to talk with you afterwards. We'll be up front here. We'd love to talk and have a conversation with you. For all of us, the Lord's got kingdom work in front of you. And for me and for our church. And it's about sharing your story. And it's about devoting every Sunday afternoon and Monday and Tuesday and every day all week long at work, at home, in your neighborhood, at your school, on your team, no matter what you're doing, always ready and willing to share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for this account. We thank you for this reminder, which is true about what you've accomplished in Jesus Christ, and in this case for this one man, but not only him, for for his disciples and for others that were witnessing all of this. Thank you, Lord, for your healing. Thank you for your rescue. Thank you that we're not beyond your love and your grace. We want to know that today, and we want to live for you faithfully in this world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.